Hey everyone, welcome to the Being Patient Podcast. I'm Deborah Kahn, founder of Being Patient. When my mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, I decided to use my skills as a journalist in a different way. Frustrated by the lack of information on science and the inability to get different expert opinions, I decided to quit my job at the Wall Street Journal to create a better platform for people impacted by dementia. We are a community where news and information is created by our team of journalists. We ask tough questions and we simplify the science so that anyone can understand. We don't only cover disease, but delve into the latest research on what it takes to keep our brains healthy. We invite the experts and ask your questions. Here's today's podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to Being Patient's live talk. Uh, this is Nicholas, reporter with Being Patient. And uh, today we'll be speaking with Dale Rivard, uh, who's 64 years old. Uh, and we'll be speaking about um, his diagnosis and his journey of living with mild cognitive impairment. And uh, he was diagnosed in 2017 at the age of 59. So Dale, um, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your story. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, so Dale, you know, let, let's start with speaking a little bit about your professional background as a, as a former prosecutor. Tell us a little bit about uh, your career. Um, I, I've been lucky, I, I have to say. You know, um, uh, I have farmed for a few years. I worked in management and then I went to law school later in life. Um, and I... Uh, I was able to uh, um, start with the, the state's attorney's office. I loved what I did. You know, um, some people, you know, uh, really don't find out what they really want to do. But I was so blessed because I loved what I did. I worked in, um, I worked for, well, representing the state of North Dakota. But I worked in the, more of a civil division. I also did some criminal work as well. But so I, um, I worked for, um, I, did, I did a little bit of child support. Um, I did uh, commitment of sexually dangerous individuals, um, planning and zoning. I, um, I, I did juvenile law, I, uh, termination of parental rights, uh, um, I guess chips cases. It was, it was just a wide variety. And then as I got um, further on, of course, then I had uh, other attorneys report to me as well in the civil division, but it was so fantastic. I worked with the best people um, and the judges. I, I was just, I loved what I did. I mean, this, I, I, I tell people that and they, you know, and I think everyone kind of just says, oh, okay, yeah. But for me, I mean, being um, uh, being a trial attorney was my life. I mean, um, even on, on the weekends, I would make sure that I was on call in case something would happen. You know, I'd be one of the first ones to go for a search warrant. I would uh, I'd go on vacation. And after, you know, I always say, oh, God, I'd be so nice to get away for a while. After a day or two, I'd be calling the office, you know, <laughs> trying to figure out, what, what, what my cases were going, what's next. I, I was always on and, uh, but I loved it. I loved it. This is what I was. So it was a, 
I was um, I was really blessed in order to find an occupation that I truly enjoyed. Well, was it about being a prosecutor, trial attorney that you loved the most? It was always different. It always changes. Some attorneys never go to court. I was in court every day. I either had hearings or I had trials. I, I just, I, I love the atmosphere. Um, I love working with the, the judges and of course, um, even the defense attorneys. I, I, some of my best friends were our defense attorneys. This is, you know, it's a different world, but it was, it was just so involving, you know, and, um, and I had such great secretaries um, and the attorneys I worked with in the office, you know, I had uh, the state's attorney. I was really lucky to have a couple of the best state's attorneys I've ever met. And uh, they let me basically control my cases. I did whatever I needed to do. Um, and if I wanted to be on any committees um, in drafting any legislation, I was able to do that, you know, for the state of North Dakota, especially with juvenile law. So it was, it was just such a, a wonderful experience, a lot of freedom and uh, well, a lot of responsibility too, but it was just, it was great. It was working with these people. It was just fantastic. And I'm sure that, you know, your diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment, you know, the ultimate diagnosis impacted, you know, your career. And I just wonder, you know, what was that like? You know, like describe to us like what was that like for you like you know what, what were some of like the early symptoms of uh mild cognitive impairment that you that you began to notice whether it be like in your career or like in your personal life well um what for me what finally did it is i i fell on the ice and um i hit my head and um um However, I got to work, I have no idea. Um, but at work, I collapsed and they brought me to the hospital. And uh, they did a lot of tests and they couldn't quite figure out what was wrong. And I started having this fog, which would come over me. And I couldn't get rid of this fog and I was dizzy. And we couldn't figure out uh, or determine what was actually going on. Um, so, they referred me to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. And after a lot of tests and numerous brain scans, you know, then they made that determination of mild cognitive impairment. At that point, the neurologist came in. I remember coming into the office and he looked at me and he said, you know, you have mild cognitive impairment. So naturally I said, well, mild, I mean, that's nothing. I mean, I'll, what do I need to do? Have you got some drugs? And, and no, he said, no, you don't quite understand. <laughs> you know, it's um, for him, it was um, uh, a question of uh, a prelude to Alzheimer's. And he said, your career is over, effective today. You know, you are done. And I said, well, I, I don't quite understand. And he said, no, you know, ethically, you can't. Uh, practice law and uh, so I came back to uh, told my my employer in, in the county that I was I was done that was completely devastating 
I mean, my life was law. I mean, this is this is what I mean. I this is what I was. I mean, when all of a sudden you wake up and you no longer go to the office, you know, and uh, you know, before people would be calling all the time, and then it just stopped. It was it was pretty devastating. But you know, I look back and I knew things were wrong, you know, but as my neurologist said, you know, what happened was that when you fell, you know, and, uh, and struck your head, it was probably coming on and it just kind of hastened um, the decline. But anyway, I knew things were going wrong. Um, uh, I started to write down before I'd have my hearings, you know, who would be in the courtroom, um, the name of the judge, the, the defense attorney. Um, if I had a, a law assist, a legal assistant next to me, that would be, that I'd be training or another attorney, I'd write their name down because I couldn't remember their names. And this is, it's, I look back at it, it was kind of embarrassing, but I, I knew I was having problems, couldn't remember names. Um, and but these were people that I see every day that I couldn't remember their names. Um, and then my, I would have, um, I would have, I was always prepared. So it got to the point where I'd do the entire hearing or the trial, I'd have it on uh, yellow pads, but I knew what I was going to say and where I was going to go. It was just like, it was post-its everywhere, you know, to, to kind of just jog my memory. So towards the end, I was, I was struggling. I knew it, you know, I, maybe I didn't know it. I knew something was going on, but I didn't know what it was. So um, I look back at it and uh, yeah, I was, I was having problems before that. It's, you know, you falling on the ice, that, that was like the last straw. And that was the last straw. That's what, that's what my neurologist told me. He said, this just kind of pushed it all, everything over. And after that, then I started having that fog and, and uh, the fog was terrible, you know, and then um, uh, your balance is very, I used to ride a bike, you know, you have a, a greenway, which is lasts about, it's about eight miles. And I would have no problem. I would, I'd love going on that. You know, it's about 35, 40 minutes, just out, out, up, down. You know, now I, I can't even ride a bike without falling over. Um, and uh, it's, uh, it's different. It's different, you know. So how, how did your colleagues... How did your family and how did your friends react when you, you know? It's, you know, it's so odd because um, there is a stigma about this. And, and I guess maybe that's one of the reasons that I'm here is I want to erase that stigma because there's a lot of people like me that live with it. For my colleagues, there's a couple that remained in touch, but not very many. It was, it was this feeling like um, 
they didn't want to get too close. They didn't want to talk to me. There was this feeling like they might get it. You know, like you got some kind of communicable disease. I mean, these are intelligent people. They know it's not true, but it's just this feeling out there, you know, or um, they feel that uh, you're, you're less of a person because of it. And for my family, well, you know, I remember on the way home from Mayo, you know, driving home and my wife and I cried the entire uh, six hours home because it was so devastating because this is the end. I, I didn't know. And especially that first six months after my diagnosis, I declined a lot. I didn't think I'd be alive for, you know, I wouldn't make it a year. And, uh, but lo and behold, um, with some of the, of the drugs and the kind of help with the symptoms and the support I've had, I'm still here. You know, I'm just, I'm just amazed. And it just kind of plateaued um, to a point where we're kind of maintaining and trying to trying to maintain as much as possible. And I want to touch on your point about the support uh, that that's helped you. But before we do, I, I just want to um, talk quickly a little bit about, you know, how, you know, you've been going to the doctors to see, you know, um, whether it's, is this Alzheimer's or is this Lewy body or is this frontotemporal dementia? Like, uh, tell us, take us through that process um, well at first um my first neurologist you know i mean he was a nice man you know but he explained to me he said well and i said well how soon do i actually you know get alzheimer's because he thought it was you know the beginning and he said well i really can't tell you but you know every year it increases by 10 percent, so it doesn't look good for you you know, so he's told me to get my affairs in order and he said goodbye, you know, which uh, so be it, you know, but after a couple of years. Sorry, and, Bill, so to clarify, so the neurologist who diagnosed you with MCA thought that it's likely that you would progress to Alzheimer's dementia. Yes, you know, and but um, we continue to have PET scans. And, um, and there wasn't much of a change um, except for my, my speech. So then he referred me to another neurologist um, who was, I guess, he was really great. Um, and he did absolutely everything he could possibly think of. He still is, you know, to make my life as, as full as possible, but also to hopefully come up with a, with a formal diagnosis. Because then he thought, well, maybe you're going into Lewy body because of my um uh, hallucinations and and some of my sleep habits and then uh, made the determination that it wasn't and then most recently he thought it was back to what well, we're looking at uh, progressing into alzheimer's but he says I, I can't make that determination as of yet you know and uh, a radiologist uh, that did my last mri had mentioned uh, put in his notes that it's the beginning of frontal temporal dementia but we haven't made a formal diagnosis. Whatever it is, it really doesn't matter. Um, uh, we all know where it's going and it's all, it's progressing. So for me, the biggest 
um, biggest problem that I do have is probably my speech. And it has affected my speech a lot, finding words and, um, uh, and being in groups, trying to follow conversations, um, even talking with, with my wife, it's, uh, um, it's hard because I, I know what I want to say. I just can't say it. And, uh, but as far as um, uh, the short-term memory, I don't think I've progressed. It's progressed too much after the first six months. I mean, I'm, it's going down, uh, let's be honest. But um, it, it, it's just different. But my speech is affected my speech more than anything, you know, I can, I can tell you right now. So the formal diagnosis right now is still of impairment, but the doctors don't know what is the, uh, what's the underlying cause or the underlying right. degenerative disease that's causing the mild cognitive impairment. Yeah. Yeah. I think you've got it. And so. so aphasia, you know, your language difficulty was really for you, like the main difficulty that you have from the day to day? Well, aphasia, yeah. um, uh, the fog that rolls in, um, you're, you're worn out. Um, it's, it's, what happens to me is, is different than everybody. You know, for me, I, I'm probably pretty good for a while in the morning and then I might have to take a nap and then I'm, and then I reset and and um, I'll take another after a while another nap and I, I reset it just it just um, it's hard to function you know but I can I can work around that you know these are things that that I can still I still am able to uh, still have a full life even with so you know, you mentioned that law is your life and then having to not practice law anymore after the diagnosis, like how did you um, approach that after a diagnosis and how do you continue to live a full life after a diagnosis without law? Well, you know, after I got my diagnosis, I didn't know where to go. So the first thing I did was went online and and I um, looked up the Alzheimer's Association and I, I called them and that uh, was the, the best call I ever made. When I called the Alzheimer's Association, there was a group, a singing group that was um, starting here in, in Grand Forks in North Dakota, um, which is across just very close to me. And um, it was called the Unforgettables. So I called and started with the group. You know, it's, I, I didn't know what, what, was a, what it was about. But what I found was that, uh, you know, we get together every once a week. But the first hour or 45 minutes is just talking with other people with Alzheimer's or related dementias that are going through the same thing that I am. 
And of course, then we sing, the singing is always secondary, but it's this communication and, and finding other people out there that are having the same or similar, um, similar problems. And you're sharing information so you don't feel quite so alone. And then also with the with the Alzheimer's Association, I was like, I was lucky enough uh, to be part of, of of a couple of groups, you know. Um, so they they keep you active, but I'd have to say, you know, uh, just getting getting involved with other people in the same situation, it really helps. And then of course, I was quite open about it, you know. Some people are are very closed. You know, all of a sudden, I know people that have, have a diagnosis and they just um, go away. Well, it's easy to, to fall back, you know, to turn on the TV and not participate in life. But it really isn't much fun. Mm. You know, you have to push yourself. But by pushing yourself, you still, I think you, you, uh, you delay the inevitable because we all know where it's going. And um, um, I want to get as much out of life as I possibly can. You know, I'm lucky enough to, uh, to have a, a wonderful wife who supports me. And um, so, and I have children, so I'm still active that way. So I, I, I have been blessed, you know, by having this, this grounding force that's around me that that really helps me in everything that I do so and then of course I still I still <laughs> try to do as much as possible some things I can't you know even in, in church uh, um, I've had to give up quite a bit because I'm just unable to do it anymore but that's okay I just take it as it comes were you you know you talked about joining um the untouchable, the, the, the singing. The unforgettables. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Not untouchables. Okay. <laughs> uh, were you a singer before? Like, or? Oh, no. Well, I, I sang in a church choir maybe for about six months when I was 25, you know, but that was about it. So I'm not a singer. Yeah. And nobody, well, there was a few of them that are, used to be pretty good. But most of us are not, you know, um, it's not that we can't be trained, which is wonderful, you know, but it's, it's, um, you feel so much better, you know, when you, you talk to other people that are going through the same thing that you are. And even for my wife, you know, it's for um, people uh, with dementia and um, their caregivers. You know, it's really tough for the caregivers, you know, as your your spouse or your significant other is um, having problems. So they're talking about how it works, you know, with with whoever they're supporting. And uh, I was amazed, you know, in our group, you know, we've had since it started, we've had more than a, a few that have passed away, you know. Um, that's what happens but you know some of them um, some progress fairly rapidly some progress fairly slowly I think 
with this Alzheimer's and the related dementias, every one of them is different. You know, we're all the same, but everybody's different and it affects different parts of the brain. So it's just, it makes you feel like a part of a community. You know, you're not forgotten. Yeah, because as you mentioned, you know, just in our brief conversation before this interview is, you can feel so alone, right? And yes, you do. You know, and that's the point, you know, you need to, to get out there. And um, my wife's family is, is wonderful. You know, um, uh, I love going to see them. They're, they're easy. You know, if they have a question, they'll ask me about it. They're just, is it, you know, they just, you know, you have a disability and you're fine. You know, some of my other family, not so much. You know, I remember speaking to uh, one family member and after I was diagnosed and she comes up to me and she says, she holds my hand and she says, you know, do you remember me? And I said, well, I was over at your place two weeks ago. <laughs> you know, No, but do you remember me? Because I know that you probably can't anymore. And I said, no, 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 it's not, it's not quite right now anymore. I still remember you, you know, so you're, you're, you're treated differently which, you know, which is kind of sad. That's why hopefully by, by coming out and, and telling people that um, with an early diagnosis, you still can live a, a full life to a point, you know, which I think it's great. Because if you were diagnosed later, boy, that'd be tough. That'd be tough. And you talk about the stigma, you know, with, uh, for instance, you know, that experience with your family member or, you know, feeling that distance from some of your colleagues. So like on that note, like, what do you think are good ways for, you know, for colleagues and families and friends to best support someone who receives a diagnosis of MCI or, or Alzheimer's or, related dementias think of it as a disability you know and that's what it is and that should be thought of as that um whether you have if you if i was thinking about it at, at work if someone at work would develop cancer you know um what can we do for you you know or even at my job i mean i still could have done a certain things i wouldn't be able to practice law but i still could could assist uh, other attorneys or, or getting cases ready or uh, research. I mean, there's things you can do. You know, you shouldn't try to work around to keep them still active and engaged. We know what's going to happen. We know what's going to progress. But especially at, at, a, at an early diagnosis, I think um, we need to to try to keep them keep them. Uh, engaged and involved and uh, and I do know that you know after talking with a few people some people have had a diagnosis and they have still been able to continue on with their position whether whatever it was and sometimes with some modifications and then you know as it progresses you just can't do it and that's fine which is wonderful you know and I think that the more that you hear about us, that we're out there, and uh, um, the easier it will become. 
you know, even myself, you know, I had uh, my, my grandmother who had passed away from Alzheimer's, uh, my father who had significant problems. Um, but until I had it, you know, I, I thought of it differently, you know, because I keep on thinking of the, the person in the old folks home or the, the nursing home looking at a wall, you know, talking to a wall or just not knowing where they are. Well, that's probably what's going to happen, but it's not going to happen to me until the very end, hopefully. You know, I'll still want to become engaged as much as possible. And especially, you know, you never want to give up hope because as the um, new medications or our new therapies come out, you can extend your life, you know. So I always want to tell people that there is hope and uh, to keep on, you know, enjoy life as much as possible, you know, especially when you get this diagnosis, it can be, it's devastating. It's just completely devastating. There's nothing worse because you think about it and, uh, and you think about, like I said before, you know, at the nursing home, you know, people that don't know anybody, it's just, that's awful, but it's not like that. You, you can still have a full life until that point. Yeah, is there any last thoughts that you'd like to add, Dale, that I haven't asked you yet? No, I guess just once, once more, just don't give up. You know, um, if you have a diagnosis like this, or if your, your significant other, your spouse has a diagnosis like this, keep them involved, keep them engaged. You know, put them out there. There are people, treat them as people, just treat them as a, a normal disability with anybody else. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah, I think one thought that comes up now for me is, you know, I've had people describe how, you know, just, you know, after you receive the diagnosis, you can really descend into a really dark hole, you know, and, and, I think. Yes, any, you go down. You go down the rabbit hole of depression. You know, yeah. it's terrible. Yeah, and for anyone, I think, or for you know, for any disease or illness, like holding on to hope when you're in that dark hole is very difficult. Um, just wondering, you know, whether you have any thoughts and perspectives or advice for folks who might be in that dark hole in terms of like how how can you pull yourself up you know in those moments well for me you know besides the group that i was involved with i i had my my wife you know and uh, she's basically my rock and i don't think she'd let me get too far in that dark hole um but uh so knowing that there's someone that's out there that still still loves you you know it makes a big difference and of course I know it sounds odd, but, you know, um, and your faith. And I think I was always, I was always um, pretty strong in my faith, but now even more so, you know, um, it's like another world that opens up. 
I no longer think about 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 work or uh, court cases or or any of, of those things. I think more about my family, my church, my children, my grandchildren. It it kind of puts everything into perspective. You know, I don't want to tell people this much, but sometimes I think about my life is probably even more blessed with the disease than without. I mean, when you're gone from this world, as we all will be, you know, what, what matters? It doesn't matter about your career or your position. What matters is, you know, have you made a difference in this world? You know, and uh, I've been lucky enough to have some wonderful people around me that hopefully, you know, when I'm gone, they'll think, well, he was a pretty nice guy. I like grandpa. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dale, for, for sharing your story and for sharing your insights. Really well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. This was wonderful. It's my pleasure. And for our audience, if you've uh, missed any parts of this live talk, uh, we'll have a recording uploaded uh, on our YouTube channel, as well as a transcript um, uploaded uh, into our website. And if you haven't forgotten, uh, if you haven't signed up to our newsletter yet, don't forget to do so. Thank you so much, Dale. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. For more information on upcoming interviews, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter at beingpatient.com. That's B-E-I-N-G-P-A-T-I-E-N-T.com. And send us any feedback you may have, whether it's someone you want us to interview or any comment about our podcast series. You can do so by emailing info at beingpatient.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm Deborah Kahn.